0: Welcome to my weekly market commentator podcast, where I speak to the leading asset managers and investment professionals in South Africa. And my guest today is Dr. Adrian Saville. He has been in the asset management industry well since forever, and uh, he has been involved with many different businesses but uh, he is best known for being the founder and chief investment officer at Canon Asset Managers. He was in this role for 17 years. He resigned earlier this year and joined Genera Capital as an investment specialist. Of course, he's also an academic where he wears many hats, most notably as a professor in economics and finance at Gibbs. Adrian, thanks so much for joining me. It has been six months since you've left Canon. Any regrets? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, well, first, I, I had to smile when you said I've been in the investment industry forever.
0: <laughs> well, when did you
1: start? I actually started, I guess, you're right, you know, that my entry into the investment industry was as a teenager, building fictitious portfolios and then, you know, some initial capital, which I invested, uh, we would grandly call this PA, personal account, I started working in the investment industry uh, in an investment syndicate in 1994, an investment club that led to the licensing of a business or gave me the capacity to form a licensed business. And that was in the late 1990s. But I've been with Genera Capital, as you say, over the last six months. And your question was any regrets? And the very short answer to that would be absolutely none. It's a very different part of the industry. It's a a new opportunity to work with Individuals in a multifamily investment office. New landscape, new terrain, and I am loving the experience.
0: Are you still a shareholder of Canon?
1: No, no, no. So that uh, transaction, which we did in, in 2017, and I exited my shareholding then.
0: But Janira, you've just briefly said it was a you know a pretty niche asset manager, but uh, I can't find any fact sheet about the funds. What do you do? They actually.
1: Yeah, well, if you've visited uh, Genera Capital website, Raymond Goss uh, is the founder with Tristan Retzloff. They are the principals in the business. Raymond is well known to the South African investment industry and increasingly the global investment industry. Tristan is based in London and the business is described, I think, in a statement as a multi-family investment office. What does that mean? Well, it it means we look after families. You know, that's the sort of that's the principle that we're looking after. The fact that we're looking after families, you know, in and of itself, that will give you a sense that we are looking after high net worth uh, and essentially helping them solve for international, global investment demands, challenges, needs. We run a fund called the Genera Optimal Fund. That's a global multi-asset solution. And that is licensed under Stenum. And we are in the process of uh, working with the FSCA's blessing, licensing a domestic solution.
0: So what you do is you look at high net worth individuals, probably their family trusts, other uh, instruments where the the assets are housed and and manage those uh, per portfolio. Or do you actually bundle and and try to have a, a more generalized and possibly a more cost effective solution?
1: So I think, you know, that's perhaps a first, you know, critical point of, you know, of distinction of where I've been historically, you know, as I said that, you know, the move to generic Capital for me was a significant change uh, in my career footprint or profile having been uh, for all of my career inside of an investment management firm. This uh, is very much about advisory or wealth management and advisory, and that's a, substantial shift. There is what I've quickly come to appreciate is there is no such thing as a, a generic uh, solution. And that's not a play on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on words or a, a half pun, um, that every family has a unique circumstance, a specific need. And so our role is to help them solve for that family need. And the fact that it's family will also give you a sense that it is multi-generational, that we are not trying to solve for uh, next quarter's investment return, but we are trying to build perhaps a good term here is patient capital.
0: Patient capital. Interesting in term. uh, How actively are you involved with investment decisions?
1: Well, you know, if you look at the investment Uh, solutions that we're building. The core is a multi-asset investment solution. And you know, I have lots of experience in looking after multi-asset. The portfolio solutions that I've described, you'll appreciate that they are global uh, multi-asset. And you could sort of read through that, you know, you could infer that that is dollar. But of course, some of our investors have euro solutions or sterling solutions. So that's the specific family solution. Alongside the multi-asset as the core, there's the capacity to put in tail, where the tail will produce very different than market results, and the tail might be to protect against downside or to gather upside. And indeed, you know, we just hosted recently one of our tail managers talking about how they protect against downside risk. So this is a they multi-asset solutions where in our investment construction, what we regard as I think sort of the two Principal uh, investment challenges or threats. Investment threat, number one, is downside risk that uh, you need to protect uh, against downside risk. And that challenge two is probably the single greatest confiscator of wealth, and that's inflation. And so that's how the portfolios, the investments are, are built against that backdrop. And if you've managed effectively for those our experience over the five years that we've been running the the portfolios is that you can actually achieve equity like returns with bond like volatility.
0: You can achieve equity like returns with bond like
1: bond like volatility. Bond like volatility. So, you you know, for either? the sake of well non-correlated assets is the, I think is the point of departure, a first non-correlated assets. And what that means is that, you know, where you've got market volatility, downside volatility, if you've built a portfolio with effectively decorrelated assets, that when the market draws down 30, as it did in the early parts of last year, our portfolio is going to draw down 10. And that's exactly what it did, which means you're reset as the market recovers your 100 hasn't fallen to 70 Your 100 has fallen to 90 and so you start building off a much higher base that means that your recovery doesn't have to be equity like recovery it can actually be far more stable far more careful capital and so but the
0: market rebounded by 50 percent plus Did that you get the full magnitude of that recovery
1: no, so but if you're recovering off 90, you don't need the 50 recovery. So you need the 50 recovery if you're recovering off a drawdown mm. to 70. But by virtue of the fact that you have drawn down much less means you know whatever you grab back on the upside, that your upside capture doesn't need to be that full participation if your downside capture hasn't been that full participation. So out of that, you actually get much, much lower volatility, but you get Participation in uh, a full capital growth. So, you know, perhaps you do need these fact sheets in front of you, the global fact sheets, for, you know, me to evidence to you. I think the powerful proposition of effective diversification, and here, you know, maybe this takes us into the investment conversation more fully, is very often from a South African perspective, and although the capital we're looking after is global, but I'll use the South African example, when you're looking at the way portfolios are built from a, a South African perspective, it's imagined that if our own US equities are internationally diversified, and we need to remind ourselves that, you know, this single global asset class ownership is not diversification. That there are times when the dollar has not been the most favored currency, that there are times when equities have fallen into a state of abandonment. You know, think of the 1970s and into the 80s where equities were an unownable asset class. If you owned US equities in the 1970s and 80s, you were in one of the most unfavored asset classes. But now if you talk to many investors about their portfolio positioning. They will talk about their U.S. equity portfolio.
0: Yeah, that is a very interesting approach. But let's look at the U.S. market at the moment. I think the Standard & Poor index has hit, I, I don't know, virtually on a daily basis all-time the past highs. few months, all-time <laughs> highs. So what is the yeah. risk profile from your capital preservation uh, perspective? How, how do you invest or how do you
1: handle it? I mean, that's a great question. From a portfolio construction perspective, you know, one of the big risks is that you get left behind in euphoric uh, circumstance. So to that extent, you know, we are cognizant of the market footprint and we'll construct our portfolio recognizing uh, the size of global capital allocation to the U.S., for instance, but also to Europe, to Japan etc. And we will moderate that by economic footprint, because you can have a market that entirely disconnects from its economic footprint. And let's not talk about the US. Let's use Japan as a case in point. In the late 1980s, Japan represented 50% of world market cap, but only 10% of world economic output. So there's a hint there that, you know, there might be a disconnect. And Indeed, you know, the way that that came to pass is the Nikkei fell 80% from that late 1980s, 1990 peak over the next 20 years. And so if you were a Japanese equity investor, you might have been enthralled by the prospect of Japan in the late 80s, only to be spectacularly disappointed. Was Japan an economic basket case? No, not at all. In fact, Japan has continued to be a very prosperous and competitive economy. But from an investment perspective, you had massive overvaluation. So, if we use that principle to look at the U.S. right now, it won't be lost on you that the U.S. speaks for about one-fifth of world economic output, but about one-half of world market cap. So, there's a sense that there might be a disconnect between U.S. valuation. And in the same breath, you've got China, which is powering ahead uh, and looks set to overtake the U.S. in terms of nominal GDP, but isn't remotely that size in terms of market cap. So if you put more than just market cap into the analysis, I think it offers a fuller perspective.
0: Yeah, That's a very interesting view. But it comes back to a question, when does a long-term... Diversified investment strategy become a wealth preservation type of strategy where uh, the focus uh, is not on peer growth anymore.
1: Just to rewind to you know the the two risks that are flagged early on in our conversation. Risk one is permanent destruction of capital and let's say you were a Japanese family investment business and you had allocated all of your capital to Japanese equities, which were the superstar of the late 1980s. Over the next 20 years, even if you were a superb equity investor in Japan, you would have lost 80% of your capital. Now, that's not permanent destruction, but that's rather spectacular destruction of capital. The second is inflation and inflation eats while you sleep. So, here, let's go to the experience of the U.S., of the U.K. in the late 1970s, the so-called winter of discontent, where the U.K. got into 15 and 20% inflation. Now, these times are long forgotten. We don't imagine that it's possible for an advanced economy to print 20% inflation. But I think investment management is asking the question, well, what if it does? You know, if it does, under that scenario, what would our portfolios look like? So, a multi asset solution caters for these risks. And uh, how do you cater for those risks? You don't own just equities. Yeah, you might have some equity in your portfolio, but you're going to own government bonds, you're going to own precious metals, uh, you're going to own commodities, which do very well in an inflationary environment, and you're going to own inflation linked bonds. Uh, You know, so that's. Much fuller diversification than a conventional sort of 60-40 portfolio, which has got 60 equities, 40 bonds. So we've got double-digit ownership of precious metals in our portfolio. We own inflation-linked bonds and commodities, which are fantastic defenses against inflation, and we own equities which will and those commodities will also participate in a growth environment. So I think this portfolio construction looks after this patient capital very mindful of what I would call uh, these primary risks of permanent destruction uh, and inflation.
0: Private equity and property you didn't mention those are they within <laughs> the portfolios?
1: I didn't mention those uh, and you know perhaps that's part of you know my new experience in learning in a family office for the last 4 or 5 years I've chaired the investment committee of a South African venture capital business or section 12j business called Meta Capital and what that has demonstrated is just how different the investment and return profiles of venture capital are and Equally, private equity. So, in part of our satellite offerings, we have access to some really compelling private equity and venture capital opportunities. Then, just
0: lastly, the local market. We did rebound strongly since March last year, but over the past few months, mm-hmm. we've been, you know, moving sideways. Maybe a, a volatile sideways graph, um, you know, would be an apt description. But the international mm-hmm. markets have continued on an upward trajectory. What are your views on the current valuations and the possible future direction of our local market?
1: When you say international markets have pushed ahead, of course, the US has pushed ahead. But if you've been uh, a European investor uh, for the last 10 years, it's been sideways. So I think you know international experiences have been varied. Domestically, well, what speaks volumes is the way mid-caps and small-caps have set up over the course of the last 6-12 months. You know, there's a base effect, but even then, they've given more than they took away. So, there's some quite nice opportunity that has set up in that slightly off-the-radar uh, environment of mid- and small-caps. For me, the real tragedy, I guess, in the South African circumstance is the ambivalence of policy. You know, what investors are constantly uh, on the lookout for is policy certainty. And we've got this flip-flopping in the policy narrative. You know, as you well know, you know, this green paper of the last couple of weeks suggesting that, you know, there's 12% of payroll available for a universal pension fund. Now, this came from left field, and it really injects a bunch of uncertainty into an environment where investors are desperately looking for policy certainty. I was in a conversation earlier today with an academic colleague in Rwanda, and she tells me that every two weeks, Paul Kagame comes onto uh, public media and gives clear direction of what the next two weeks looks like from a lockdown perspective, a vaccination perspective, an economic mobility perspective, and I will see you in two weeks' time. And he speaks to the Rwandan population every two weeks with regularity. You know, by contrast, we've got a lot of noise in our policy. We've got this green paper. Sometimes the president speaks, sometimes he doesn't. I think that that is uh, snatching a victory from the environment or perhaps stuffing defeat. Uh, into the jaws of what is possible valuation mm-hmm. perspective. The, the South African environment has been heavily uh, influenced by the goings on and process in NASPAS heavily influenced.
0: As you say, you know, I, I think the poor performance of those counters have actually hidden the excellent performances of mid caps and, and specific sectors, uh, you know, like yeah, the, yeah. the financial sector asset allocation uh, geographically. Uh, how much do you actually look at the local market?
1: I'm responsible for domestic asset allocation. Global asset allocation, it's hard to find a case for bonds. It's even harder Mm. to find a case for corporate bonds. Domestically, there are some attractively priced assets, and I'd say almost the exact opposite domestically, that in a tame inflation environment, nominal bonds and inflation-linked bonds are attractive. They've delivered almost uh, double-digit year-to-date. They still look uh, attractively priced. Inside, of equities, there remain some very compelling cases, but I think you need to be careful about where you go. It's a case of finding the good assets and being satisfied that their drivers are in place. Commodities have really set up. I mean, have a look at the performance of some individual counters. Sabanya uh, is is a great talking point. I mean, what an absolute rock star. And a superbly managed company, I don't want to take anything away from the management, but, you know, can the tailwind of commodity prices stay in place? And that's a harder case to make. It's a much easier case to make about their management, just a superbly managed business. But it's a harder case to make that the commodity tailwind will be in their favor for the next 12 months.
0: Just lastly, do you see cryptos as an asset loss? <laughs>
1: Would it be funny if I shared with you that I bought my first non fungible token on the insistence of my son? <laughs> <laughs> so. I have ventured into that water only so that I'm not an armchair critic, uh, but I'm on the field. I bought some Ethereum. We bought a non-fungible token. I'm trying to figure this out. I don't understand it. It's esoteric. It's quirky. I can't get my head around how you value something that has no intrinsic underpin. So can I reserve judgment for now while I experience my first investment in NFTs?
0: Yeah, I I delivered a guest lecture at an MBA school not too long ago. And one of the case studies I used was, uh, listen, say you get 100,000 Rand, what would you do with it? And many people said, buy equities, pay down uh, the mortgage bond, and then 50% of the people, 50%. And these are mostly young professionals, said they would buy crypto. So there is definitely a value perception amongst maybe a younger generation.
1: It's captured uh, minds and attention You a know, good reason to put a question mark over many central banks and their ability to print money uh, in a fiat currency world. The printing of money debases it. That's evidenced by inflation. So I share that concern, the cynicism. What I can't get my arms around is how do you value this thing? If you can't value it, you know, how do you regard it as an investment class? How do you value gold? <laughs> Fair comment, you know, fair comment. And so in that landscape, you know, if you are going to put gold into your portfolio, then if you do a market cap equivalent, then you should probably own The equivalent of half of whatever your physical gold position, that should be in crypto if you're going to go, you know, on that basis. So I don't want to dismiss it. I think that might translate into a spectacular soundbite, you know, in my (laughs) investment career. You know, here's the guy who said crypto was worthless, but it's just really hard to work out how you value this thing. And so, you know, that's where I'm spending my investment time in this terrain is to work out you know, how it works, how it behaves, how you value this thing fundamentally or intrinsically. And, you know, I can volunteer that I'm making some headway, but I would hardly call it a solved case.
0: Yeah, well, I think once you have skin in the game... Your perspective may change and it's uh, actually quite yeah, interesting. I've got
1: my wooden non-fungible token, <laughs> my Adrian <wooden> statue. <laughs>
0: Adrian, thank you so much for your time today. That was Dr. Adrian Saville. He is an investment specialist at Genera Capital.